Turn with me, if you have a Bible, please, to Romans chapter 14. And let us, um, let me read verses 1 through 8 as we take, <coughs> take a short break from our examination of the Ten Commandments. Romans chapter 14, verses 1 through 8. <clears throat> we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. <clears throat> for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. <clears throat> For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy, as it is written. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we have the joy and the privilege of coming together and looking at your word, examining it, thinking about it. <clears throat> we find that in your word there is complete consistency, there is complete accuracy, there is complete success in accomplishing your purpose. Your word does not contradict itself, Lord, but instead causes us to see your principles, your directions, your guidance, and the way you have worked in history in such a way that we will be inspired through the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in holiness. Lord, we pray that as we look at this passage today, that you would cause us to understand it, that you would cause, if we have looked at it many times before, fresh insights to come into our hearts and our minds. All of this for that purpose, Lord, that we would give glory to you and honor you in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that my words might be faithful to you and to your word, because your word is uplifted and your word alone is holy. In Jesus' name, amen. This past Wednesday, <clears throat> I greeted a lady at the checkout by saying, Hello, sister. Now, nobody in my family lives within 600 miles of here. But I said this because the week before I had a chance to meet Jerry Shibley, who some of you know, at the same place. And as he and I went through the checkout together, she had asked if we were related. <clears throat> we were just standing there talking together. And I said, well, sort of. And Jerry said, we're brothers in Christ. To which she had responded, well, then I'm your sister. So Wednesday when I said, hello, sister, she said, haven't I seen you before? I reminded her of the previous week, <clears throat> and apparently Jerry had told her that we were both, both pastors, and so she asked me what sort of church I pastor. I told her the church was interdenominational, and that usually creates a stir one way or another, maybe just because it's a big mouthful and a lot to spell. <laughs> but I told her that, and she lit up. <clears throat> to her, that is the way to be, independent of denominations. She proceeded to tell me that they had had a preacher at their church on Tuesday night who told them, and she goes to an independent church of some sort, 
that they weren't to be Christians who focused on denominations or creeds, but instead Christians whose focus is on Jesus. There I stood, she regarding me not only as a brother in Christ, but as someone who was completely like-minded in my lack of regard for denominations and creeds. And I was somewhat uncomfortable, because I am at one with her in faith. And yet at the same time, I am opposed to denomination or creed bashing. So I said, oh, well, that's, that's great. <laughs> you, you can picture yourself being in that kind of situation where you don't want someone to feel uncomfortable about your feeling uncomfortable, but you're feeling barely uncomfortable, and you, well, you know how those sorts of things go. There's something that we find in Scripture that we have to remind ourselves and remind one another about on a continuing basis. And it is about the issue of unity. Now, the reason I am looking at that today and taking a break from the Ten Commandments is not because there is some situation that I would like to bring up with regard to our church here. But it's because of this situation this past week sort of sparked a number of different thoughts and tied together a number of different things that I have seen and observed or heard about going on in our community at large. The thing we have to recognize in looking at unity is there is no such thing as unity of Cornerstone Chapel divorced from unity of Cornerstone Chapel along with all the other believers in this community in the world. What we are told in Scripture is it is the body of Christ is the church. Not that the body of Christ is Cornerstone Chapel or any other distinct church. The body of Christ then has to include in it Cornerstone Chapel, those who trust in Christ. So over the last number of weeks, there have been several events in our community that have caused me to consider this subject more deeply. We need then to look at what Scripture says about these issues and questions. Because our enemy, the devil, will seek to use division and pride to prevent us from serving the Lord together in an effective way. Is there something wrong with being affiliated with a denomination? On the other hand, is there something wrong with not being affiliated with a denomination? Is there something wrong with creeds? When there are differences, what should the church, Cornerstone Chapel as a part, and the body of Christ, all of the believers as a whole, what should the church do about them? First, we have to return to reminding ourselves about the answer to the age-old question. What is the church? The church, of course, is described in scriptures that are already mentioned as the body of Christ. It is made up of all of those whose faith is placed in Jesus Christ to save them from their sins and sinful nature. It is made up of all of those who are trusting in Jesus Christ to free them from the wrathful judgment of God to come upon those who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Scripture is clear on what is necessary for salvation. Ephesians 2 verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This faith is credited to us as righteousness. 
as we are told in the epistle to the Romans, but this faith does not save us. We cannot even say of ourselves, I'm so glad I had this faith because because I have this faith, I am saved. That by itself becomes, I did something and God gave me what I deserved because I had faith. It is God's grace. It is, as Ephesians 2, 8 and continuing says, a free gift that leads us to faith, proclaims us new and holy creatures in Christ Jesus. People who have been made clean in the eyes of God, not because we did something. We cannot. That is the whole lesson of Scripture, and particularly the Old Testament, as expressed in the book of Romans. We cannot do something. We cannot live according to the law in such a way that we are clean in God's eyes. That is why it was necessary an absolute must for Jesus Christ to come, to live on this earth a completely holy and blameless life, sinless life, and to die as a sacrifice. And because of his sacrificial death, he has bought us, those who trust in him. And he has removed the guilt of our sins from us. Now, this is like the epistles. I was thinking in in preparation for this that the way the epistles work, particularly as Paul is writing, is he goes frequently through the um, theological aspects first. This, that, and the other. These things because of this. And then he says, in essence, for that reason, this is what it means in daily life. After having laid out the framework, after having laid the foundation, why these things are true, What about God causes us to believe these things? What he has said in Scripture causes us to understand these things. Therefore, the house starts getting built. This is what you must be demonstrating in your lives. The foundation is frequently not seen. It comes from Scripture, as expressed by God. And what is seen is the results of that foundation in our lives as Christians. Therefore, if this is what the church is, that means that there are people throughout the world who know Christ, who are therefore our allies in the war of all time, the ongoing life and death battle of righteousness versus evil, godliness against ungodliness. It means that there are people who we do not know, who are nevertheless our brothers and sisters in Christ, if indeed we are true followers of Christ. It also means that there are those who we believe to be followers of Christ who are however, not believers and not our allies. In his parables, Jesus spoke of those who would call him Lord on the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, didn't we do this for you? And Christ denies them, saying, I do not know you. As olden days, Christians called them professors only. Now, this is no slam on those of you who are professors. What they were expressing by this was simply that these people, these professors only, professed the truth, but they did not believe it, and therefore did not live it out in spirit and in truth. Because there is a clear definition of the church in Scripture, we must apply that definition in our lives as well. Scripture does not tell you and me as believers in Jesus Christ, does not tell us that we are to avoid the world. It does not tell us to avoid the people of the world. 
This was the lesson that the Pharisees did not seem to get when Jesus was living on the earth. They kept on rebuking him and reproaching him and his disciples for the fact that they associated with people of the world. Wicked, vile people. And Jesus said, you don't understand. I'm a doctor. I've come to heal the sick, not those who are well. Scripture does not tell us to avoid sick people. Instead, we are told that our concern needs to be for the purity of the church. Those we are told to avoid in Scripture are those who proclaim to represent Jesus Christ, but do not uphold His name and His teaching. And Scripture is very clear about that fact, that you and I are not to be associated with people who claim to follow Christ and yet teach or believe or live out something that is contrary to His Word. We are to steer way clear of those who, while taking the name of Christian, dishonor the Lord in their beliefs and their actions. So, there is a place for creeds. Creed is defined in the Random House Dictionary as an authoritative, big mouthful, an authoritative formulated statement of the chief articles of belief. An authoritative formulated statement of the chief articles of belief. In order then to determine who belongs to the Church of Christ and whose belief and practice proclaim they are false to Christ, we must necessarily look to creeds. Because we certainly cannot pretend that regardless of what people believe, they are part of the body of Christ. Creeds are tests of faith. We are told in Scripture, Jesus specifically said it, No man comes to the Father but by me. That in itself is part of our creed. Which means, in practical terms, that the theological belief in universalism, there are many paths to heaven, is not and cannot be true. This means that we as Christians need to know what we believe. More than that, we must understand the key essential beliefs of our faith. We have to know what is essential in the Christian faith. It is something that you and I must learn. We also need to know, on the other hand, and there's frequently there's a there's a um, there's a continuum. On one hand, knowing the essential beliefs of our faith. On the other hand, we must know those parts of our faith or those elements of everyday life in which there is leeway, in which there is room to move, in which there is opportunity for Christians to be different from one another. Are there places? Is there an opportunity in God's Word for us to be different from one another and yet still be Christians, part of the body of Christ, united, one in heart and mind? There are various creeds which the church has put forward over the centuries so that people can remember by memory those beliefs which are essential. The Apostles' Creed is one, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, probably the most common one among us. These creeds have been formulated by putting together key elements of Scripture concerning what followers of Christ have been told in Scripture we must believe. 
about Christ, about salvation, about God, about sin, about the resurrection, and about other essentials of our faith. That is why, for instance, we have a statement of faith at Cornerstone Chapel. In order to put forward what we believe are the essentials, the fundamentals of the Christian faith, so that there are no misunderstandings. Scripture also makes itself clear not only about those beliefs, but also about actions, behaviors. And we have to realize that, that you cannot, you cannot take the epistles and strip out the theology, keep it, and throw away the practical aspects of the epistles. Theology, theological beliefs, what you believe about God, what you believe about salvation, always comes down to practical everyday outworkings. If you are offended by Jesus saying, no man comes to the Father but by me, then you will endorse universalism. It will seem impossible to believe that there is only one way to heaven, that there is only one way to gain salvation. And so every theological belief has its, its um, accompanying practical outworking in human life. So Scripture not only says these are the beliefs, but it also makes it clear about those behaviors which are not compatible with Christian faith. Now, there are various lists that occur throughout the New Testament. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, Galatians 5, 9 and following. First with 1 Corinthians 6. Do, not, do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.19 The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, as we look at these lists and as we look at other lists elsewhere in the New Testament we will probably say in our hearts, woe is me. Because somewhere on that list, or one of the lists, is described sin that I have been involved in. What we need to understand is these lists tell us that people who believe they can be immersed and continue in such sins. That such behavior, for instance, is fully compatible with faith in Christ and is not sin, is not sin, which God detests that these people have not repented and cannot continue in such sin and gain salvation's promise of heaven. These lists are not telling us that those <clears throat> who commit these sins, David, for instance, was an adulterer. And yet, he was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he did not claim that this sin was not sin. He committed it. He wallowed in it for a time, God confronted him, he said, woe is me, <clears throat> which was a proof that he had accepted salvation through repentance. Therefore, creeds and judgment of lifestyle choices are necessary for the church to seek purity and for believers to ally themselves with others who bear the hallmarks of true Christianity. <clears throat> but today, 
So many people seem to have cast off creeds and they proclaim that creeds, whether biblical creeds or church creeds, whatever, these sorts of statements of faith they claim are valueless. As a result, they have a hard time discerning between those beliefs of the faith which are essential, those which are important, and those in which there is a great freedom of latitude. Those beliefs in which there is an extra amount of room to move among believers. Consequently, they wind up allying themselves, for instance, on one hand, they wind up allying themselves with people they believe to be Christians just because they share some common beliefs which are on anything but the essentials. For example, Christians attend churches because they like the music. When the pastor and the leadership and the teachers of the church do not uphold or believe in the authority, accuracy, or unfailing success of God's Word, the Bible. Or they attend certain churches because they insist, for instance, upon women elders. Yet they fail to realize that their children will not be taught that there is only one way to heaven through salvation, that by Jesus Christ. And therefore, while their preference is satisfied, their children learn universalism, which is totally contrary to the Christian faith, completely destructive to the notion, for instance, of missions. Then there are those who wind up dividing. This is the other side of the coin. There are those who wind up dividing from others with whom they share all of the essential beliefs because they will not tolerate others having freedom to move in those areas which are completely unessential. For example, Christians separate from other believers because they don't like the fact that the pastor has said he believes that contraceptives are wrong, even though on all the fundamentals of the faith they are of one mind. Or some may leave churches because they don't like the fact the church has a youth group because they believe the youth should be integrated into the adult groups in a cross-generational way so that they are not exposed only to their peers. But the youth program and the rest of the church is as sound as sound can be, biblically speaking. Now, I'm throwing out a lot of examples here, and I'm not thinking, I may be thinking of some specific sorts of things that I've heard of in this community or other communities, but you start putting these sorts of things together and you get the idea. We have to focus on the essentials. And we have to, uh, we have to, lose our focus on those things that are unessentials. We have to stop nitpicking about unessentials. We have to see to it that other people don't nitpick about these things. What can we do to prevent and discourage these things happening? We must constantly be reminding ourselves and others of the essentials. We must constantly be reminding ourselves and others of what is unimportant. If someone comes to you or me and says, they're from another church and they say, I don't, I really, the music, just a conversation the other day about my home church. Thus and such and thus and such was going on and uh, some of the younger people wanted choruses and they have a rich musical tradition and the music at the church is magnificent. And in situations like that, you and I must say, hold it. This, is this an essential It's not an essential. Sure, we'd love music that we resonate to. It's maybe a good word there. Uh, (laughs) 
And maybe that is a reason to find another church, but it's not a reason to complain. It's not a reason to start stirring up differences. We need to work together. It's a reason to start working within the church, perhaps, and find other ways in which those sorts of things that you would like to see happening can be happening in that church. But we need to see that we must not ally ourselves, for instance, with nice people. But instead, we are allied with people who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so easily, we are so easily fooled. 2 Corinthians 11.14 tells us this, For Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness. Paul was here speaking of false prophets and teachers in the church and their devastating effect upon the believers if we are not careful. What this means is that you and I must not accept things at face value. This is something that uh, causes deja vu to come to me because this is something that I try to say or I guess I do say it on a somewhat semi-annual or whatever basis. We cannot accept things at face value as Christians. We must probe deeper. To see what is at the root of religious leaders, teachers, others we believe to be our brothers and sisters in Christ. Are they faithful to the Savior whom they claim to serve and to teach others to serve? Or are they false prophets doing as we are warned men will do in 2 Corinthians 11.15, masquerading as servants of righteousness? In other words, dressing up in a costume which conceals their real identity. When is the last time you felt that you had heard or detected a false teaching or observed an unbiblical lifestyle? Did you confront it or assume that everything was all right because you trusted that individual's credentials or found them to fit your subjective standards of living? Or did you separate it from it without confronting it or those involved in it? You and I must be constantly vigilant, testing ourselves and testing one another, not in a negative, put-you-down sort of way, but to see that we are encouraging one another to grow, not to stagnate. I remember a number of years ago speaking with a friend and asking him what he believed about the Bible. He didn't give a very clear answer, so I asked what his teacher believed. Although he went to the man's church and attended his Bible classes, he couldn't tell me anything about what the man believed. Instead, he said, he won't tell us what he believes about the authority or accuracy of the Bible. He wants us to make up our minds for ourselves. Now that sounds very noble until you look a bit closer and see that on this matter hinges everything else you believe. It sounds noble until you consider that the teacher may, if you assume that the teacher is allied with you in his belief and support of the authority of Scripture. But consider the possibility that the teacher may very well be avoiding telling his class or his church what he believes because his belief is not consistent with historic Christianity. Then you find this position, these statements, to be very dangerous and the teaching to be deceptive. In seminary, Roger Nicole was a professor of systematic theology at Gordon-Conwell. He's now down at Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. He is Swiss, and he speaks like this, and he is the only... I have fallen asleep in a number of classes, but Roger Nicole is the only professor I have ever known who falls asleep in his own classes. (laughs) He's a wonderful man, and he is a scholar above all scholars. He has a, well, he has a 40,000 volume 
library, theological library, of some books from the 13th century. I mean, you just look at... His library is amazing. And then he has a 20,000 volume of mysteries. <laughs> so he is well-rounded. Well, he is well-rounded, so to speak. Um, anyhow, in Systematic Theology 1, one of the things you examine is bibliology, which means what about the Bible? And in Roger Nicole's class, he makes no bones about it. No one has any questions about what, what Roger Nicole believes about Scripture. He lays it out. He lays it out clearly. He will explain to you what other people believe, and then he tells you exactly what he believes about the Bible. That it is verbally, and that in its plenary and verbal inspiration, in other words, it's inspired as a whole and it's inspired word by word, that it's completely accurate, that it's unfailing in its purpose. And so his students go forth from that saying, I can live with that or I can't live with that. But they have no doubts about what he is presenting as a historic Christian position and his position regarding the authority of God's word. <clears throat> it is crucial that you and I ally ourselves with people of the same faith. In the city of Bristol, it is claimed there are around 130 churches. People, particularly who come from the north, find this hard to believe and hard to understand because they may come from a city of 100,000, which has five churches. If you've lived here for some years, it isn't so difficult to understand because we see in our community the church divisions are going on constantly. If we understand the importance of dividing on the essentials of the faith so that our churches uphold the fundamentals of the Christian faith, then we realize some church splits are explainable and justified, while others aren't. Others are merely the demonstrations of human pride exhibiting itself in divisiveness. Now, what we need to do to sort these things through the mesh of what is right and what is wrong is not to come up with a list of things that are right reasons to divide, or to divide churches or to go our separate ways, to leave a church and go to another. What we need to say is... <coughs> Emphasize the fundamentals. De-emphasize. Ignore those things that are not fundamentals. What we find in our passage is that you and I are to seek to please our fellow believers for their good. What this means is that you and I are to avoid seeking our own pleasure and our own preferences. Now this is contrary to what we are used to doing. We are used to, we spend our lives putting a priority on our own desires and pleasures and on the desires and pleasures of our immediate family members. <clears throat> but by entering into fellowship with the Lord, we covenanted to become more and more like Him. Scripture tells us that as He is our model, even though He was the Lord of the universe, in Romans 14.3, even Christ did not please Himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. So with Christ as our model, we are even to be willing to suffer the abuse that is due to others. Now that is injustice, isn't it? We are told in Scripture, Paul rebukes the Corinthian Christians, says you're going to court with one another. Isn't that proof that you have already been defeated? How much better to be wronged and to suffer that wrong silently than to be defeated and to go to court with one another? The example here doesn't say you and I seek the pleasures of other Christians to make them happy. That's not what it says. It says we are to seek to please our fellow believers for their good. Now this will oftentimes mean that you and I will say things 
or do things with regard to one another that aren't pleasant, that do not result in happiness. But with God working in the mix, they will result in holiness, which is better than happiness. The goal that we read in our passage is for believers to be built up, to be strengthened, to be able to withstand those knocks, dents, and bruises that come our way on a daily basis. All of a sudden, this would make a revolution in our church life and church choices. I'm not specifically, again, I'm trying to keep on protesting this one. I'm not specifically speaking about us as Cornerstone Chapel. This is a community. We're a body of Christ. This is something that we take into every situation and we, we reflect back to Christians that we work with and go to school with. Our purpose is to please our believing neighbor. And what a revolution this would make in church choices, for instance. And all of a sudden, the focus would shift from what am I going to get out of this to how am I going to be able to make a difference here? How are my gifts able to make a difference for the building up of the believers and the spread of the good news? Too many people leave and refuse to associate with other genuine believers for small reasons. Because they are not looking outward. They are looking inward at their own needs, at their own concerns, rather than outward at the needs and concerns of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And instead of demonstrating genuine concern for others, they indulge in pride, which tells them, I deserve a better church. I deserve to be associated with better people. I deserve better programs. I deserve better this or a different that. Until finally what often happens is they become so elite that they put out their own shingle and build the church of me and my friends who think just like I do. This is when church has become what it must never be, a mutual admiration society. Church is not built for mutual admiration. Church is built so that we can say to one another, I am a sinner, you are a sinner. The only possibility for our salvation is found, thank heavens, through God's grace. Not based upon my improving myself, or you improving yourself, or even my massaging you in such a way so that you get better. Is based upon God's grace, and that is what transforms us into a church. What happens when we focus on the essentials and de-emphasize the non-essentials is we become unified. This involves the same virtues as are encompassed in endurance and encouragement, as we are told in our passage. Unity is not something that comes easily. Endurance, encouragement, and hope are encompassed in this as we are talking about unity in our passage. Why endurance? (laughs) Why endurance when we're talking about unity? (laughs) It doesn't take much thinking to realize why endurance. Because boy, oh boy, is it a pain in the neck to put up with me. Isn't that true? You have to endure me. (laughs) I know the things that are objectionable about myself to other people. You know the things that are objectionable about yourselves. So we, we endure each other. That's part of it. We also encourage each other so that we grow. Ah, and the hope is in there because the hope enables us to see that unity will come and it is there. The hope is there for us to say, ah, it's not dependent upon Nathan changing working, somehow getting rid of those things I don't like, 
Somehow getting rid of those things that are obnoxious to him, me getting rid of those things that are obnoxious to me, is dependent upon the power and the grace of God where, where the hope is. And then the unity comes. Why unity? That is expressed so clearly in our passage. It's easy to be unified if you just meet other Christians on a day-by-day basis and you don't have to work out the essence of theology and you don't have to work out the essence of practical implications of what church is all about. Unity really is a rubber meeting the road when we are able to join together and praise God together. And what God wants to hear from His people is not a hundred different voices, a hundred different hearts. It says in our passage, so that with one heart and one voice, He wants us to be a choir singing different parts, but singing them together so well that He hears it as one song. (laughs) So as you consider what is involved in a church life, church life, a broader church life, as you consider what is involved in being a follower of Christ, Think on these things, because our ultimate purpose is not our pleasure. Our ultimate purpose is the worship of God in heaven. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we ask that you would impress these things upon our hearts, because we need them constantly impressed upon us. We need your Holy Spirit to remind us of them constantly. I pray, Lord, that you would help me, that you would forgive my sins, that you would make me the man that you want me to be that I would not be a test of endurance for my brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray this, Lord, not only for myself, I pray this for each one of us. But cause us through encouragement and hope, Lord, to look to one another with great joy and rejoicing, with the love of Christ, being able to worship together. And we pray that you would unite us, give us joy in our uniting to worship you, and unite your church in this community so that there might not be divisions and pride that rule, but instead unity in order that we might worship you in a way that is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.